turn now to God's word. We are continuing our study through 1 Samuel and First uh, Samuel chapter two, and uh, the the second portion of that chapter, starting in verse eleven. This is the word of the Lord. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, the priest. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and all that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used to make for him a little robe and take to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving in the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings with all, from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we uh, thank you for your holy word, uh, a word that brings light into dark places. And Lord, we are gathered here to worship because we trust you. We trust your word. We tr trust the truth of it, that it is for our good, for our health, and for your glory. And so we pray that you would instruct us, take these ancient words and by your Holy Spirit, apply them into our lives, into our community that your justice, your truth, your love, your compassion may be present in our church. And so uh, we open our hearts to you now, Lord, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Amen. Well, today we are talking about the misuse of authority in the church, uh, which I think is an important topic for you all to hear from me as a pastor and from our leadership, that uh, the authority of the church is not absolute. And this past year, we've talked quite a lot about authority, specifically about the limits of the government's uh, authority. Uh, We've said that just because the Bible says that as Christians, we're supposed to submit to the governing authority, it doesn't mean that the government's authority is absolute. The church has her own authority that needs to be maintained, and the government only has the authority that's been given to it by God. And one of the key ways that I've learned about this that this last year is I've been uh, reading an author named Abraham Kuyper. Abraham Kuyper was a pastor, in, a Dutch pastor and theologian who became the prime minister of the Netherlands in, uh, in the early part of the 20th century. And in his book on the church, he had essays on church and state relations. But in that same book, he said that the limits on authority that uh, apply not only to the civil government, but also to church authority. And in this section where he talks about pastors and elders and deacons, he finishes that section talking about the priesthood of all believers. He says that all of you as church members have an office, the priesthood of all believers. You have authority that is a balance to the authority of the elders. And this is the way Kuiper puts it. He says, a believer may never accept something because the minister of the church said so. A believer may never accept something because the minister of the church said so. That's Roman Catholic, not Reformed. We're a Reformed church. He says, in a Reformed church, every believer must possess spiritual judgment and put that judgment to work. And in particular, Kuiper says, When the governing offices go astray, the office of believer enters into that place. And so that's telling us that church authority is not absolute. And so the same Bible that says to us, submit, you know, church members submit to your elders, the Lord says in the Bible also, beware of false teachers. You'll know them by their fruit. You all have a judgment to discern the teaching that you're hearing. You have to use spiritual judgment. And uh, the reality that Church leaders are capable of evil is a serious matter in the Bible. And in this passage, there are two priests, they're pastors, abusing the people under their care, and the Lord kills both of them. If you have concerns about spiritual abuse in the church, I think passages like these show us the honesty of the Bible that acknowledges that abuse happens in spiritual contexts, and God is not afraid to name it. And so I recognize uh, this may be a, a difficult topic for some of us. As I, you know, as people come to a church like this, everyone has a different background, and I don't know everyone's backgrounds. And so um, it's my hope to be as careful in the, my words as I can, but I think this is an important topic for us. And so today as we study 1 Samuel 2, I, I'd like to answer three questions for us. What is spiritual abuse? How does it happen? And how does the Lord respond to it? What is spiritual abuse? How does it happen? And how does the Lord respond to it? And, you know, as ancient as this passage is, it comes from the 11th century B.C. in ancient Israel. It's amazing how many insights are relevant all the way up into our day. How little, you know, humanity has changed throughout those years. So, So three questions for us this morning. And the first is this. What is 
spiritual abuse. And I think the definition of abuse is, is really important. We, a couple of years ago, we had Dr. Diane Langberg came and spoke to our church, and she's a psychologist and is, uh, works with people all over the world who have experienced abuse and, and, and trauma. And uh, she put out a recent book called Redeeming Power, Understanding Authority and Abuse in the Church. And when Dr. Langberg was here, she had lunch with our elders and talked with us about abuse. And we asked her, you know, how do you, how do you define abuse? What is abuse? And this is... Uh, what she told us is that the key to abuse is when a person with power is using another human being who is under their power for their own gain. Abuse is when a person with power is using another human being who is under their power for their gain. And so this could be in a family, you know, a father, older brother, mother, cousin. It could be a teacher or physician. It could be a boss or a coach. Or in the church, it could be a pastor, elder, deacon, or ministry leader. Now, this passage take place, takes place at Shiloh, which, uh, at the tabernacle in Shiloh, and where, which is a place of worship in the Old Testament, the early part of the Old Testament. And there were priests and Levites who were uh, ministers at the tabernacle. And we learn about the leading priests there. In verse 12, it says, Now the sons of Eli, who were the priests, were worthless or wicked men. And so when we ask what is spiritual abuse, we actually have examples of two kinds of abuse that these worthless men uh, do in this religious setting in this passage, is that they were using God's people for wealth, and they were using God's people for sex. Both of these kinds of abuse did not just happen in ancient Israel. They have happened in the church many times throughout the centuries. And so I'd like to say a few words about each of them, okay? So first we see that they were using God's people for wealth, for their own material gain. And this passage, when I read it, it might have been kind of obscure to you, so let me explain some of the details of what's happening. If you look at verse 13, now it says, the custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come. While the meat was boiling, with a three-pronged fork in his hand, he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or a cauldron or pot, all that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Now, you might read all that and say, I don't know what this is talking about, the fork and the cauldron, and what are all these details? Well, if you go back to the book of Leviticus, God had set up careful instructions for the priests on how they handled sacrifices in God's house. And one of the main things that is given instruction there is that when an animal was brought to be sacrificed to the Lord, there was a portion that was given to the Lord, there was a portion that was given to the priests, and there was a portion that was given to the people. And what's happening here is the priest says to the portion that was going to be given to the people, he tells his servant, go in and stick your fork in there and grab a big chunk of the people's meat and come and bring it to me. He is stealing the, the, the feast, the food that God's people had saved up to come and feast with the Lord in his presence, they are stealing that food from them. And, uh, and these sacrifices were costly. You'd go up once a year and you'd bring a bull or you'd bring a goat and it's probably the most valuable possession you have. And the people who brought these, those sacrifices were there out of a desire to honor God and obey his word and worship him. They were trusting and vulnerable and obedient. And these priests were taking advantage of them. 
And you can see that it's not only that, it's not only they were stealing, but they were even robbing God of his honor because the verse goes on in verse 15 where it says, Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat to the, for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man uh, uh, said to him, Let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give now. Uh, and if not, I will take it by force. Now, again, when you go back to Leviticus and you learn about the sacrifices, you'll find that one of the key verses there is it says, all the fat belongs to the Lord. And what's happening there is that when these people brought these, the, uh, the, um, these animals to the tabernacle, the tabernacle was God's throne room. You know, he's enthroned on the cherubim over the ark. And so God's people were gathering to their king, and they were going to feast in the presence of their king, the king who protects them and loves them and cares for them, and they're going to worship their king. And the way they would show honor to God as the king when they feast with him is they would give him the best cut of meat. It was the portion with the fat on it. And so what the priests were doing in this setting is they say, and so the way they would offer the fat to the Lord is they would roast the meat, and as the fat burned off, it would, the smoke would go up to the Lord, and it was our, the gift to show the honor that the Lord is worthy of, of the finest cut. And so the priest said, no, 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 we don't want to cut after the fat's cut off. We want a nice big steak with a strip of fat on the edge of it, and we're going to take that for ourselves. There's a tremendous pride in this, that God is worthy of honor. And they said, no, I'm, I deserve the, the peace of honor. And part of the way that this kind of thing happens is that pastors and leaders justify these things that they think they deserve because they work hard and because they think of their position. And they think, my, heart, my, my work is so, is so difficult and it's so important. I deserve this extra piece. And uh, Hophni and Phinehas probably thought they deserved these portions. But once you start justifying a small sin, the sins that get justified begin to grow. And that's what we see in this passage is they start off by using God's people for material gain. You know, they're taking their meat and their, their, their most precious possessions from them. But it grows to a second thing that we see is they begin using God's people for sex. We should all feel the great horror that such a reality exists in the church. We should share the Lord's anger at it. But we should also be grateful that God's word is honest enough to name it. And he names it here in verse 22. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how... They lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. These priests were using their ministry, their status, their privilege to get access to these women who were serving God at the tabernacle. And this is a tremendous evil. I'll tell you, you know, some of the tragedy of this verse is that we know very little about what worship was like at the tabernacle in ancient Israel. You know, we have some of the details from from Exodus and Leviticus. Um, but there are only two verses in the whole Old Testament that give us a hint that there were women that were serving at the tabernacle, helping with the Levites and the priests. There's one verse back in Exodus, and the second verse is here in 1 Samuel 2. And how tragic when we hear about the ministry of women, it's in the context of abuse. 
Who knows how many times such scenes have been repeated throughout history? And what does the Lord have to say about this? How big a deal is this to the Lord? Well, the end of verse 25 tells us, it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Many people talk about how they're uncomfortable with God being a judge or God being angry, but it's in a context like this that we see how could he be any other way? Do you want God to not be angry about this? Should he do, not do something to confront such evil? And the Lord's response shows us as a church the seriousness of this issue. And so what is spiritual abuse? What we see in this passage, it is the using of people. It's when someone is in a position of spiritual authority and they use God's people, in this case for, for material wealth and for sex. And the Bible is acknowledging, warning that this can happen in the church. And so if we are going to be on guard against it, I think that leads to a second question, is how does this happen? How does this, you know, it's so unimaginable that that would happen in the church where people should feel safe and in the Lord's care and in his protection. How can that happen in the church? Well, I want to point out three insights from this passage. Okay, how does this kind of thing happen in the church? First, it happens when the leaders don't know the Lord. It happens when the leaders don't know the Lord. And that's what this passage says in verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Abuse arises from the heart, from a darkness within. It's a spiritual condition. And this verse is telling us that the most important quality in the leaders in our church, we have to ask is, do, do they know the Lord? Have we been humbled by the Lord? Do we fear the Lord? Do we fear his word? Do we know his love and have we treasured it? Has his love softened us to say uh, that, that as a leader, I'm not here to be served. I am here to serve and to pour out my life for others. And how do you know what's in someone's heart? The Bible says you have to look at their life and listen to their words. Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. People tell us what they care about. They can't keep it in. It comes out of their mouth. And they can't keep it inside either. It comes out in their life. Jesus says you judge a tree by its fruit. And for these pastors, the fear of God was not in their hearts. And when leaders have not been humbled by the Lord, it leads to a second problem. So we say, how does all this happen? Well, first, you have leaders who don't actually know the Lord. They don't personally know the Lord. Second, it happens when leaders create a culture that enables abuse. When leaders create a culture that enables abuse. And the wording is so interesting in this passage. Verse 13. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come. This has become a custom in the, in the tabernacle. It was a part of the culture there. They had developed a system that took advantage of people. And it wasn't just the priests who were involved. It was their servants who were going and they'd take the fork and they'd steal the people's food and they'd come and bring, bring, it, uh, uh, bring it to the priest. And probably those servants thought, well, the priest told me to do it. I mean, he probably knows Leviticus better than I do. And it's probably somewhere in Leviticus. So I'm trusting my priest. And often when something becomes a custom, people just assume it's okay. You know, at first they might say, that seems weird. 
That's something seems off about that. But, you know, well, they're the pastors. They know what they're, you know, they're God's people. They're, they know more than I do. Abuse happens in a custom or culture that tolerates it and covers it up. And how could a culture tolerate that? You know, they're stealing from God's people. They're stealing God's honor. And they're mistreating the women in the sanctuary. One, one answer for how this can happen is that the, these two priests, their father was the chief priest, Eli. And at one point, he, uh, uh, when their abuse got so bad, he finally confronts him and says, what are you doing? You cannot do this. And, uh, but his voice has no power. They just ignore him. And you know why that was? We find out later that Eli, the chief priest, was eating those fat portions. He himself had become fat. He had been enjoying the extra meat that they had been stealing from the people. So he was complicit, and he had no moral authority. And I think that leads to a third answer of how can this happen. So the leaders don't know the Lord personally. They've created a culture that normalizes the abuse. And the third thing is that spiritual abuse happens when leaders won't listen to correction when leaders themselves will not listen to correction. And twice in this passage, uh, Hophni and Phinehas are, are confronted with their sin. And one time it's from a worshiper. It's from a layperson, a church member, who's coming to worship, who knows God's word and knows how the Lord is supposed to be worshiped. And in verse 16, you see what it says. And if a man said to him, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish. This is a worshiper coming and saying, what you're doing is a sin. I know. And, and then they say, fine, you know what? You want to steal my meat? That's fine. You can steal my meat. But make sure the Lord gets his portion. That's why I came all the way here, is to honor God and to worship him and at least give him the fat portion. And then the priests would physically threaten them and intimidate them. And so they refused to hear correction. And so then a second time, the father, Eli, comes and challenges them. Look at what he says in verse 23. And Eli said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings with all the people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? And what is their response? But they would not listen to the voice of their father. And that word, listen, is, it's one of the most important words in the Old Testament. Uh, if there's one word that describes what it means to be God's people, it is probably this word, listen. Actually, maybe the great summary of the faith in Deuteronomy 6 begins, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your might. That's how you obey, Lord. That, that's how you live a godly life is by being willing to listen. And these priests would not listen to their father, to the people in the church, or to the Lord. And we'll see in a couple of weeks that the Lord's going to kill these two priests. And he's going to raise up a replacement for them, who is Samuel. And when Samuel is growing up in the tabernacle, and the Lord calls him, almost the first thing we learn about Samuel is that he's, he hears from the Lord, and this is what he says, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. He is willing to listen. I find it striking how relevant these truths are to us in our day. What is spiritual abuse? 
It is pastors or spiritual leaders using the people in their care for themselves. And in this passage, we see the priests using God's people both for material wealth and for sex. And how does this kind of thing happen? It's when leaders don't personally know the Lord themselves, when there is a culture or custom that enables and normalizes the abuse, and it persists when leaders refuse to listen to correction. Now, I know there are people in our church who have experienced spiritual abuse in some form, and one of the saddest effects of it is that it causes such a deep distrust to the church. How do I come here with an open heart, a trusting heart, when such things have happened in God's house? If that is you, I want you to know how grateful we are that you are here in this church, trusting and believing that the Lord still wants your worship, is worthy of your worship. And the Lord is so glad that you are here. A key piece to experiencing healing from such abuse is really this third question that we need to answer from this passage is how does the Lord respond? So there's these terrible priests that are working in God's tabernacle. How does the Lord respond? If we're to have a soft heart to the Lord when abuse happens in the church and not give up on the church, we have to know how does the Lord respond? Is he really righteous and good? And so I want to show two ways that the Lord responds in this passage. Okay, first, the Lord exposes the evil that he might bring healing. This is how the Lord responds, is he exposes evil. He brings what's in the darkness into the light. And, uh, you know, I think one of the most important things about this passage is that in the Bible, the Bible tells us about church leaders abusing people. God wrote it into his word that will be there forever. He says judgment begins with the house of God. And so whenever we hear about some church leader who's there's been a scandal and it's in the newspapers and we think how terrible, what dishonor this brings on the church, we should think, well, that was the Lord who did that. It's the Lord who brings the things that are in the darkness into the light because he doesn't want honor that is covering sin. He'd rather bring the sin out into the open, even if it would bring dishonor upon his kingdom. It's the integrity of the Lord. But also, you know, there's a great scene in the, in the Gospel of Matthew when uh, Jesus looks out on all the people that are coming to him. And it says he sees them and has compassion on them because they are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. It's, the people are abused, he's saying. And uh, he looks at them and he has compassion on them. That's the Lord's response. And I'll tell you, in that passage, immediately when Jesus looks out and sees all these people that are abused, he sees a mission field. He, he doesn't just look out on those people. He looks out on the whole world. You know, Diane Langbird, who, who I mentioned earlier, she says that is our whole world in every nation is filled with people who have been abused and traumatized. And the church is supposed to be a place where they come and find refuge and find healing and find the love of the Lord to, to return them to a heart that can praise and worship him. And that's what Jesus says in that passage, is that we should pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest to care for those people. And uh, one way that we can be a place of healing for those who have experienced abuse is to reflect to them how the Lord sees such evil. 
And this is the way Langberg puts it. She says, you and I become the representative of God to the survivor. Our work is to teach in the seen that which is true in the unseen. Our words, tone of voice, actions, body movements, responses to rage, fear, failure, all become ways the survivor learns about God. I believe the reputation of God, of God himself is at stake in our lives. We are called to represent him well. While we try to represent God, the survivor struggles with questions about God. Who is he? What does he think about my abuse, the loss of all things? What does he think about me? Am I loved? Am I forgivable? Does his patience run out? Why should I have hope? Jesus sees all of this. And he has compassion. And people must see in us a reflection of God's justice, truth, love, and compassion. The Lord's response is to expose the evil, to bring it into judgment, and bring care to the abused. And I want to add one thing about Jesus' care in this passage. Uh, because amazingly, it's, it's not only his care for the abused, but I think the Bible also shows us Jesus' care for the abuser. And what struck me, you know, I was reading this passage, I was thinking, where do we see Christ in this passage from 1 Samuel 2? And the verse that jumped out at me is the end of verse 25 again, where it says, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. And later in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, there's a great prophecy about Jesus dying on the cross. And it uses very similar words, and it says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Jesus was put to death like these evil priests in the place of abusers that they too might be healed. And why is that? Most abusers were themselves victims of abuse. In the cross of Jesus, we see God's perfect response to abuse, that the evil of it is put on display, it is exposed, it's brought into the light, but the offer of healing goes out to all. And so how does the Lord respond first? The Lord exposes the evil so that he might bring healing. But the second thing I want to point out from this passage is the Lord also raises up a new leader. He puts to death these two leaders, but he raises a new leader, a, a righteous leader. And woven into this passage is, is the raising of, of Samuel. See, sandwiched in between the sins of Eli's sons is verse 18 where it says Samuel was ministering before the Lord. And Samuel would become a leader in Israel who was good. He was righteous. He followed God's word. He obeyed God's word. He was a prophet. The Lord had not given up on the tabernacle. And one thing this passage on abuse tells us is that not all leaders are abusers. We're all sinners. We all have the capability of evil. But there are people in the world who are trustworthy. And you might say, how can that be? If everyone is capable of evil, how can anyone be trusted? Well, even more than this passage saying that there are leaders who aren't abusers, this passage is giving us a longing for the true high priest who was to come. In fact, uh, this verse about Samuel, look at the end of this passage in verse 26. It says, now the young man Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. That verse is almost exactly quoted in Luke chapter 2 to describe Jesus when he was growing up. 
Jesus is the greater Samuel. Jesus is the greater leader that the Lord was raising up uh, that we should trust without question because he is the leader with no evil. And every week we come here to church and we say the words of the Apostles' Creed and we say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. I believe in the Holy Spirit. And we say, I believe in the church. And uh, that is a statement of faith to say, I believe in the church. Despite there has been evil in the church, and yet I believe in it. And why do we believe in it? Is because Jesus, the only one perfectly worthy of my trust, loves and is committed to the church. And if Jesus is committed to the church, then I will be too. And so as we study spiritual abuse, the reality is that in our world, spiritual leaders will use their power and use their people for their own gain. This happens when leaders don't truly know the Lord, when there is a culture that enables abuse, and especially when leaders refuse to listen to correction. We trust the Lord because he is just. He exposes evil and because he's the one who's raising up godly leaders. And above all, he's raised up Jesus who sees the abused, the traumatized, the helpless, and he has compassion on them. May he have such compassion on many, even in our community. And may we experience that compassion. May we experience his safety. And may the Lord protect us. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, uh, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that here buried in the Old Testament in such ancient texts, we find uh, your justice, your compassion, your wisdom, your truth, your judgment. Lord, we need all of these things in our life. May we live before you with fear, with humility, with trust, um, with obedience. Lord, give us righteousness. And may our church be a place where you bring those who have been abused that they might experience the healing love of Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen.